Welcome to Surface Tension. My name is Grant. And my name is Sharad. This is the podcast where we explore men pushing boulders up hills and the meaning of life. <laughs> so here's the analogy. Imagine you're an ant. You live in an ant colony. You have your ant job and your life revolves around ant activities. One day you find a little crumb, the equivalent of a gold nugget in the ant world. You're excited. You've hit the jackpot. You carry your treasure back to your anthill full of joy. But then imagine suddenly realizing that you're just a tiny ant on a massive planet in a huge universe. All the work that you do, all the crumbs that you find, it's ultimately meaningless in the grand scheme of things. And so this analogy I think is perfect because I feel like a lot of us have had these clarity moments and they also start to bring a lot of feelings of anxiety and you know, you feel a lot smaller. You start asking these questions like, okay, why am I doing this? Why does this matter at the end of the day? Who is this actually helping? And so I'm sure you've had moments like that as well, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And so you start to think of one, not only is the task or activity that you're doing meaningless in the grand scheme of things, but it starts to make you feel like you are meaningless in the grand scheme of things. And so this is where this concept of absurdism comes in. It's not the answer to this meaningless, but the meaning, or sorry, these feelings of meaninglessness, but a way to rationalize them and start to tackle them head on. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the exact definition of absurdism, let's talk a little bit about metaphysics and philosophy as a whole. So metaphysics, as I just explained a little bit earlier to Grant, is just a really, really fancy word that gets thrown around a lot for beyond physics. It's literally when the Greeks were studying physics, the chapter, it was called metaphysics because the chapter after physics. So you can imagine it as anything that falls outside the objective reality of science and topics that discuss things like philosophy and Again, the question of the meaning of life and what is our purpose and things like that. And so we're going to first talk about metaphysics as how or how we start to rationalize these things. So when you're trying to figure out what is the meaning of life, what, what would you say is the meaning of your life? What would you say is your purpose? So you asked me that earlier in the week as a little bit of a prep for the podcast and I actually had a pretty tough time kind of grappling down with it. I thought I first, initially the answer I wrote down was two things, one work and then people. So one work, then two people. So one work, meaning like the things that you're doing, the things you're learning about, the things that you're doing in school, the things you're doing on your free time, stuff that you're like producing and making and, and creating and working on. I thought that was a big component of it. And then two, like the people in your life, the people in my life, my family, my friends, like you guys all give me purpose and makes it so that I feel a reason for living and a reason for oh, thanks. Being on this planet. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great answer. Here's here's the issue though. And it's oh man, it's almost a depressing topic, but I want you to stick with me throughout all of this, right? And okay. so <laughs> here's here's the thing that really got me when I was doing a lot of research into absurdism as or just philosophy in general one of the main questions that you can start to ask as you think through these types of questions is why 
there's this concept called the chain of whys. And it basically says that if you ask why you do something enough times, you will eventually get to the point of futility or meaninglessness. Mm. Okay. And you can test this with anything. So why do we right. work? Why do, you, why do you work? You want money. Why do you want money? Do you want to live have in a good place? Right. Have yeah. good friends, whatever. And you just keep going down. And it, no matter what you really do, you will get to some point. Uh, and some people describe this actually as a natural fallacy. And so you'll hmm. some there's a little bit of differing opinions, but some people will say <laughs> you'll get to a point where people would just say, oh, humans are just around just to procreate, you know, like everything <laughs> leads to that. And so I don't know. I don't know how much I believe in that one, but I mean, I do believe that if you ask why enough times, you'll start to feel like what you do is meaningless. Hmm. And yeah, this is I'm thinking really, even yeah, really quickly to jump in. I feel like if you continue to ask why, it's like, why do I want friends? Like at the base level, I'm a biological creature. We're all creatures. We want friends because our cells want to procreate, like you said. And then why do we want to procreate? Oh, like, because we're <laughs> like, there's no exactly, meaning right? to it. Yeah. Like the selfish gene, like things just procreate right. because they're here because they procreate, not they don't procreate because they want to procreate. They just naturally happen to procreate. Exactly. And so this is why metaphysics exists as a category, because there's only really so much you can dive into, into finding mm. the meaning of life. Okay. And also, if you think about it on the opposite way, the more you as a person learn about the world, you will realize how much smaller and sadly more insignificant you are to the world. I heard a really good um, anecdote about this where when you're a kid, you tend to think that the world, not because you're selfish or anything, you're just a kid, you tend to think that the world revolves around you. But mm -hmm. as you grow up, you find yourself becoming smaller and smaller in this world, especially as you learn more about the world, right? So here's the fact that we've gotten to. At the end of the day, as almost depressing as, as it is to talk about, we are little tiny grains of sand in the infinite span of time. There's always gonna be something before us and there's always gonna be something after us. And at the end, the world will collapse, right? Way past us. And there's pretty much nothing we can do about that. And here's where absurdism comes in, is humans, although we know this concept, although that if you ask enough questions, if anyone asks enough questions, they can figure that out. Mm -hmm. We still, our innate desire and and the why, the why that we do things is to find meaning in life although there is no real meaning from what we've just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. And so Camus, Albert Camus, now I'll introduce him, the author of The Stranger and the Myth of Sisyphus and many other works, was an Algerian philosopher that coined this term, uh, the absurd. And the absurd yeah. is what these two meet. It's a conflict between people's desire to find meaning in life and the fact that there really is no natural meaning in life, at least that we can figure out. And mm -hmm. a really good... Uh, quote, I can't quote it exactly, but what he, he essentially says is the only way that humans can find or try and look for meaning in their lives and interpret the world is through our senses and our ability to reason. Mm. And that's how we absorb. And that's all, th those are all the tools we've been given 
to try and find the meaning in life. Hmm. And so you start to think about how difficult that would actually be and how there's pretty much no way we could actually discover why we're here or what we're supposed to be doing. I heard a really good analogy about it also. I keep bringing up analogies. That's what this episode is going to be. A lot of analogies. <laughs> but think about it like this. This is from this podcast called Philosophize This. Think about a cow that's going to go and be processed and become food one day. The cow doesn't know that is its end. But if it did know that was what was going to happen to it, don't you think it would act differently? If it knew that that was its purpose, it would try and avoid that purpose, right? And so right. in a lot of ways, we are similar in that we don't know our purpose. And if we did know our purpose, we, not, we might not be able to fulfill it. Does that mm. make sense? I think so. So you're saying if we were to be, so if we were, we are the cows. And if we were given like an imbued purpose when we were born, it would be against our, and we might not want to fulfill that purpose. We might want to fulfill that purpose but it may or may not be in our power to fulfill that purpose. Right, exactly. And so from there, this is where philosophy comes in. It's people's way of, is of wrestling. What do we do with this? You know, that's mm. where existentialism comes in. So existentialism, I'm sure a lot of people know, is literally what we're talking about right now is grappling with this topic of what do we do? What is the meaning of life? And things like that. And then nihilism is almost a subcategory of existentialism, but it's also on the other end of the spectrum where it takes the stance that we've been talking about of, okay, there's no meaning in our lives. Mm -hmm. And because of that, nothing matters, nothing will matter. Um, and in some ways I used to be a bit of a nihilist and I've changed a lot of that now and and it wasn't really by choice that was i don't know this is how it was a lot of actually a lot of teenagers happen to be unconscious nihilists they don't really know that they are nihilists right but then absurdism sits in kind of this middle place between the two of them and this is a, an important distinction to make because with nihilism what ends up happening is if nothing matters then where does morality fit in there's no right. You can do anything that you want, treat anybody however you want. Right. There's no reason to be a good person or there's no reason to hold mm. a set of morals. Whereas with existentialism, it's almost the opposite. And absurdism comes in and says, look, you know that in the grand scheme of things, your life has no meaning to the world and you really have no purpose. But your knowledge of this gives you freedom. And so that's exactly what Camus says. And so his, one of his exact quotes is, freedom is nothing but a chance to be better. Oh, I really like that quote. That's yeah. a really good quote. Once you understand that, yes, there's the sad reality that your life doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, you are free to then make the most of your life is basically what that quote means. Um, and so another quote that he has is the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your existence is an act of rebellion. Hmm. And so that's, Wait, let, that, let that sink in for a second. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the idea that the only way to be 
Say it one more time. The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. So is the unfree world he refers to the idea that we, the world itself, where we have a start and end, we're going to, we were born, we die, and that Let me get is how we're unfree. Okay, okay. Got Let it. me get into that. So now that we've understood a little bit of what absurdism is, Camus says famously, and I wanted to wait this out a little bit before I said this, because this is almost dark stuff, but not really once you start to unpack it. Okay. Camus says there's three ways to deal with the absurd after someone encounters it. The first one is suicide, meaning you let the absurd win and you basically say, hey, the world is meaningless and I accept that. And you effectively separate yourself from the absurd. And so now I'll get into the second topic, which is philosophical suicide. And that's where nihilism could potentially be categorized, but mainly philosophical suicide. It has a very negative undertone, but it's really not negative at all. Mm -hmm. A really good example of philosophical suicide is religion, because even though you have encountered the absurd, you have realized, you know, I'm trying to find meaning in a meaningless universe. I look for other ways to distract me from that and pull me away from that. And Camus says that this is a very logical and almost good way to deal with the absurd because it gives your life meaning. So religion, for mm. one, is a very good example of this because, for one, it gives people direction. It gives people a set of morals. It gives people the ability to turn away from the absurd and not have to worry about the meaning of life because life, the meaning of life is past this life. Right. Does that make sense? So a lot of religions follow this theme. And so... Mm. So it takes find, you a step back and you no longer have to worry about finding meaning of life for yourself. It's predefined in a book that's given to you and teach, taught to you and etc. Exactly. Those are the first mm. two ways to deal with the absurd. And they actually, as you know, I'm trying to really push the idea that it's not a dark thing to say, but they both do the exact same thing, which is distract you from the absurd one more mm. permanently than the other. And so the last way to deal with the absurd that Albert Camus talks about is to rebel and to embrace mm. the absurd. There's a lot of ways to really break that down and how that actually matters. But first, do you, do you kind of see how this is categorized now? Yeah. So one, you kind of disregard everything you say, my life is meaningless, it's never going to have meaning. Two, you subscribe to someone else's definition of meaning. And three, you subscribe to your own definition of meaning, I think is what I'm hearing, and you just rebel against the meaningless world. Right, exactly. And so this is where I wanna talk a little bit about where stoicism comes in and a okay. little bit about the progression of philosophy in general. So, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong because I'm no expert. Actually, I want to make this distinction now. I'm no expert in any of this. And so if you want to go to any sort of primary text, I want to refer you to first the myth of Sisyphus. And then for Stoicism, I really liked Recess's episode that they did on Stoicism. But from my understanding of Stoicism, it's basically a 
A lot of it stems from the writings of Marcus Aurelius and I think Seneca it was. Yeah, Seneca. Yeah. And a few of those guys from ancient Greece and the way that they dealt with a lot of their problems back in the day and their outlook on life. And one thing to note about Stoicism, it was in a very different time period than it is now, but a lot of it is adopted into, which I didn't actually know until I read about, into slightly modern philosophy. And so you'll find that even guys like Nietzsche adopt a lot of the philosophy of Stoicism, you know? And Stoicism, basically, the premise of it, one of the main things, amor fati, uh, basically means, you know, it means love your fate. And so basically Stoicism stems around this idea that you have a fate, it is out of your control, just like absurdism. It's out of your control, but you have to learn to love your fate. Mm. And so this is something that is very consistent throughout all the writings of Stoicism. And it's been unfortunately transcribed as something completely different. And a lot of the people that are perpetuating Stoicism nowadays have just turned it into some alpha Chad, you know, hyper-masculine. Yeah, that is my was my initial impression of it. And upon further reading, it, it is actually a very beautiful way to look at life and the problems that come with it. And absurdism actually adopts a lot of these ideas. So, you know, you deal with their fate. You use it as an opportunity to improve uh, all these things, right? You deal with what you can deal with and what is out of your control. You try to worry about as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that sort of what lines up with what you have studied about it yeah also same thing i think that's the biggest thing i took away from it was you appreciate your fate like you reflect on death it's like an often quoted thing where you sit down and reflect that you will eventually die and then work backwards what is going to be important to me when i die like that deathbed perspective idea and then people will also like go out in i think it was seneca or maybe a few of the other like founding fathers of stoicism they would take off in the middle of winter or in the middle of the year, they would take off their like clothes and basically walk through in the cold. They would walk without shoes for the entire day, things to make them appreciate the things that they had, as opposed to taking them for granted and not appreciating them in general. But I think that kind of gets off of right. the topic, which was originally what you mentioned with the Yeah, Fati, exactly. And which so is like reflecting on death and making sure that you're going to die. That stoicism is a very good way to look at life and look at the problems that you have to deal with. But one thing that is critical to understand about the distinction between Stoicism and Absurdism is Nietzsche was before Camus, or sorry, (laughs) Camus. And so I've been trying to train myself to say his name correctly. (laughs) And so Camus actually came in around the 1940s. His first text was The Myth of Sisyphus, which we're about to get into in a second. And then the stranger followed closely behind. But Camus' philosophies started to come around World War II and that era where people started to, instead of looking with looking within the lens of how to deal with life's problems that you have no control over, they started to broaden the philosophy a bit and start to look at what is the actual meaning of life, which... Stoicism addresses as, I think, mm. the, the way that I might be misquoting this, 
But I think the way that stoicism addresses this is you follow sort of a natural order mm -hmm. and the set of rules that you hold and the way that you deal with issues that come at you follow your commitment to nature and the world and being a better person. Whereas, so that's a, a mm. logos element. And so you follow a set of rules, whereas absurdism basically says nothing like that is important, but yet we must try and define our own set of rules and figure out what is important to us. That's a distinction that actually comes with historical hmm. context because, you know, after Nietzsche, I would say that life started to decline for a lot of the younger population in terms of what was happening in the world, right? So Camus, Albert Camus, he was at the height of his, at the peak of his writings and when he was writing his most famous texts was just after World War II had ended and the Algerian rebellion had just begun. And so that's important to remember. And so he was in a very conflicted time. Okay. And so the reason that's important is a lot of people talk about privilege philosophy, which is the idea that philosophy is sort of a privilege to most people because people that are hungry or are, or are in times where or they can't feed their family or in war times, a lot of them don't have the ability or even the time to think about what is the meaning of life. You know, they're, they're just trying to survive. And so I think Camus context to what he mm -hmm. was from, he also, there's a number of things about him. He had tuberculosis, uh, he came from a very poor family. And so the context of Camus is very important because it shows that it comes from a place of empathy. And it's, he's not just some rich kid that, you know, went to fancy schools and was making these assertions, right? So it's important to understand that context. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a very interesting guy overall, and it's almost poetic. He actually died in a car crash at the age of 47 or something, so very, very young. And yeah, but, you know, his canon of books well, is just incredible. Okay. Um, I've only read The Myth of Sisyphus and The Stranger, but I highly recommend both of them. And I know you have read The Stranger, so let's talk about that a little bit, not about the actual contents of the book, mm -hmm. but let's talk a little bit about what that means in general, right? So the, the Stranger was actually the first big book that he released and the Myth of Sisyphus came after. But the interesting thing about the Myth of Sisyphus is that it was written before The Stranger. And the, the Myth of Sisyphus is basically a long essay. It's like mm. 90 pages. And it describes everything that I just tried to describe to you in the last 20 minutes. It's really difficult to read, but it is phenomenal. And so that's why one thing that I didn't really understand after reading The Stranger, which is a book commonly given to high schoolers, was how anyone would be able to understand the true abstract definitions and undertones of The Stranger without reading the myth of Sisyphus. And so I was very confused actually when I read it because if I had read mm. that book before the myth of Sisyphus, or if I had just, you know, not read the myth before that book or after at all, I would be, it, it's almost a story about mm -hmm. minor conflict and nothing really happens. And there's some cool quotes here and there, but 
you don't really understand a lot of what's mm-hmm. happening in the book if you don't have Camus' intended lens on the story. I'm actually kind of doing an experiment on it right now. I gave the book to my sister and I want to see what she just will pick up on it because everyone innately has these absurd thoughts and absurd ideas, but no one will be able to really grasp that just from reading. Maybe I'm just dumb, but I just don't think anyone, anyone would be able to just grasp that out of nowhere. Right. And so this <laughs> no, no, no. Sisyphus comes in. So I've been talking a lot about this. We've thrown this book around. Yeah. What is it? It's really interesting because the first, it's about 90 pages and the first 80 pages are trying to explain the absurd in very difficult language and things that you have to read three times before you understand any of it. And then he finally comes to this analogy at the end, which I had been waiting for this whole time, which was actually the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a character in the Odyssey. He, I think, was a king. And there's different variations of what he did, but the thing to note is that he got punished for uh, basically just trying to avoid death as a whole. And the ways that the god punished him was that they sentenced him to push a boulder up a hill for the rest of his life. But the caveat is once he gets to the top of the hill, the boulder will inevitably roll back down that hill to where he has to start over again. And this seemingly just simple story illustrates the point of the absurd and its relation to us so well in that, you know, we all live very routine and monotonous lives for the most part. There are things that you will have to do every day that you're not going to like to do every day. There are you know, you you will have to push this boulder up the hill every single day and your days will start all over again. Uh, and at first this sounds, again, pretty depressing, but how do we look at this from Camus' angle that he's trying to tell us about? So I'll give you a, a, an analogy here. Why do you go to the gym? inevitably your body will start to wither, right? Would, uh, wouldn't it be that I then well, stay healthy and strong for the remainder of but, my life? I mean, okay, yes, yes. But at the end of the day, you will age no matter how much you go to the gym, right? This gym analogy is really powerful, especially to people that go to the gym because you understand that regardless of how many times you go to the gym, your body will start to wither at some point. But that doesn't mean that you stop going to the gym, right? And so this is why this boulder analogy is just a perfect analogy. And you'll find that it also works in other sorts of things that we do that appear to have no meaning, such as making this podcast or art or writing or anything like that. Why do we do any of that? You know, at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really have anything to do with our purpose in the universe, right? If you ask enough whys, again, you'll find that a lot of these things are futile and meaningless. But does that mean that we stop writing? Does that mean that we stop creating? No, that's what Camus is all about. It's about rebelling in the face of this Mm -hmm. meaninglessness and this universe that refuses to 
justify any of the purposes that you try and deem on yourself. And so this analogy of the myth of Sisyphus is something that you'll see a lot of just movies and books wrestle with that you wouldn't even think about. And again, oh, hmm. not to spoil the myth of Sisyphus, but here's the last quote from the book that I think is once you've read the whole thing, very impactful and powerful. Here it is. I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one's burden again, but Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain in itself forms a world. The struggle towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And that's the main point that Camus comes to. It's this struggle. Every day we're going to have to do the same thing. But it's about learning to love little elements of the struggle that you have to endure. It's about pushing your boulder up every single day and trying to find something new every day and trying to just chip away and make yourself a little bit better every day. And I just find that quote just really, I think I sent it to you a while ago and you said, do you know what this means? And I, you know, well, like I, I didn't really until I read a lot more on it. Wow. Yeah. I remember you actually, I forgot that you sent me that quote because when you sent it to me, I didn't click at all. And now that you've gone through, I've gone through like the explanation of what the myth of Sisyphus was talking about and what the absurd was. It, it finally makes sense. I've yeah. Like, I've talked for a while. What are you, any, any thoughts that have come up or? <laughs> One image that came to mind was, so we all have our bolsters, right? We all, every day we derive meaning from the things that we do, the work that we do, the struggle, the the things that we, the energy we put into the day. And I imagined a field strewn with like hills, different sized hills for each person. And everyone had their own boulder pushing up the boulder. <laughs> oh man, it's a beautiful image. Cause you think about, you know, we're both pushing our little boulders up the hill. And I mean, oh man, and then you look over and you're like, oh, hey man, like what's up? Nothing, <laughs> smile, you know? having fun just pushing the boulders and it's a really good image too because it gives you this idea that everyone has this complex life mm -hmm. that can be almost put into this analogy where everyone's pushing their own boulder up and it starts to contextualize things and gives you a beautiful image of people everyone is really destined and trying to get towards the same thing which is mm -hmm. trying to be a better person trying to work on yourself every day in this meaningless universe, even though all the meaning is created by you, it's cool to admire someone else's meaning that they go and create. Right. And I just think that's so cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. It makes me even think about if we, as an astronaut, right, say the Mars in the movie, you get thrown on a desert planet, the, you're not, your meaning isn't derived from anybody around you. Like you yourself are yeah. alone on that mountain pushing that boulder. And you have to derive that meaning from the struggle to survive and the struggle to do everything. And that's a beautiful thing. Like just getting the little things out of life and seeing 
every little moment, the journey for what it is. That's a Dude, yeah. powerful message. That's that. crazy. And before we move on to one of the more final things that I'll talk about that will hopefully wrap it up, I want to give you another quote that I actually sent you as well that only in the past week has started to make sense to me. And hopefully it will make a little bit of sense to you now. Mm-hmm. And here's a quote. If I convince myself that this life has no other aspect than that of the absurd, if I feel that its whole equilibrium depends on that perpetual opposition between my conscious revolt and the darkness in which it struggles, if I admit that my freedom has no meaning except in relation to its limited fate, then I must say what counts is not the best living, but the most living. Do you remember I sent you that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a ridiculous quote, and I've been thinking about this one a lot, especially that last line. What counts is not the best living, but the most living. I feel like a lot of us in, in our lives are so fixated on what we can do in a year, but we don't think about what we're doing today and how that'll improve us in 10 years, right? What is what is the most living mean? Like what is what is best living versus most living? How do you interpret? So I think for me, if I were to try and define the most living and the best living, the best living points towards a life that I want and I'm trying to push towards. But the most living aims and kind of nails down it things that I could be doing today to make sure I'm like having the best day I can possibly have, mm. enjoying what I have now instead of trying to, you know, think about something that isn't around me right now. And oh, okay. Day. So like the most living as in your the most amount of time spent living for the moment, spent living for the present, enjoying yeah. the present, as opposed to yeah. looking forward to the best living. Right. I, there's this other quote that I see floating around the internet and it's a response to, you know, how people say YOLO, you only live once or, you know, people will be like, people will say, you know, Oh, like go to this tonight, YOLO, whatever. You only live once. It's just not true. You only die once. That's true. But you (laughs) live every day. Uh, I think that's a way to kind of look at this. That is cool. Well, I've never you thought will come like to an end one day, but that doesn't mean that you can't do the most living in between now and that day. Yes, sir. Pretty sick, right? That is pretty sick. <laughs> Metaphysics is cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. cool. I'm, it's, dude, I've been like a volcano waiting to erupt because no <laughs> one will listen to my metaphysics stuff that I want to talk about. Yeah, I can imagine like the immediate, the word you bring up, like the immediate, I mean, the time you bring up metaphysics is the time the person turns away and is like, no. And I hope someone has made it to the end of this episode because it is cool. It I used to think this stuff was so like, me, like meaningless. It is meaningless. But <laughs> at the same time, it has meaning to me, you know. And uh-huh. I hope that other people listening can derive a similar sort of feeling. And here's where I'll kind of bring it into a close with at least what I want to say. I told you before this to refresh your knowledge on the movie, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yep. And here's why. Okay. So one thing I want to introduce that's an idea is that not everyone has encountered the absurd. It's not some 
it's not some big thing, but you know, some people just haven't don't, they don't tend to think about these things. They don't tend to think about their position in this meaningless universe. And one thing that can help people understand any type of experience that they've never had is art. So books, literature, and especially movies. And I think movies can really do this in a beautiful way because it allows someone to visualize a concept that they just have never felt and therefore understand it. And I think everything, everywhere, all at once is a perfect, absurd movie. And I'll detail why a little bit. Okay. If you watch this movie, the two main characters, the mother and the daughter, are basically grappling with each other's definition of life throughout the entire movie. It's a very chaotic, multiversal movie that tries to explore what is the meaning of life, right? Would you agree yep. with that? And so the daughter, if you start to think about this, the daughter is basically a younger version of the mother, but has learned about different things. And so she realizes that everything is meaningless. Nothing really matters. And so she's at a stage of nihilism mm. and the father is an existentialist in the movie. And mm. so that's why, you know, a lot of the things that come up with him are very positive and, you know, he derives his own meaning. And so the mother throughout the movie, we actually don't really get a grasp on what position she has philosophy wise, because for most of the movie, if you think about it as kind of this analogy of the boulder pushing, She's pushing up the boulder with these meaningless, monotonous tasks. You know, she's forced to do taxes, taxes. and she runs the laundromat. And then she has to deal with, you know, her daughter's outbursts and whatever. And then the multiversal ele uh, element comes in in the movie and she starts going to this, these universes where, you know, she has perceived meaning in another universe. She's like, oh, this would have been so cool to have been an actor in this universe. Mm. But... And she ends up in that universe and for a bit of time, she stays there. And at the end of it, the multiversal version of the dad who didn't end up marrying her basically says one of the most famous lines in the movie, which is in another life, I would have loved to have been doing laundry and taxes with you. Right. Right. And so then you start to realize this is where this, these elements of the absurd absurdism comes in where you kind of just laugh in the face of this meaninglessness is these googly eyes. Oh, so I don't yeah. know if you remember but at the beginning of the movie, the mother rejected the googly eyes. She was like, mm -hmm. this is so stupid. Like, whatever, like, please don't put these on these. Like I'm done with these googly eyes. And this is one of the things that Camus and Earth <laughs> advises it in a lot of, his writings is the only thing. And this is also the main difference between stoicism and absurdism is you have this agency, this sense of agency. So yes, you have to accept your fate, but that doesn't mean that while you're accepting your fate, you can't laugh. Mm. You can't enjoy it. You can do something about it. You can still laugh through it. And this is the agency part that the eyes represent the googly eyes represent in everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. And so then this climax finally gets to a point, you know, where she's dealing with the daughter's nihilism and they're really wrestling through that. It gets to a point where, funnily enough, they're two rocks on a cliff, 
right? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was and the best part. That was like my favorite movie scene in the movie. It's sort of this beautiful imagery where there's no sound at all. You sort of hear the wind whistling and it's just a very quiet scene and nothing is really happening. And the first time they get there, it's to show the mother that, look, in this universe, nothing actually happened. We were actually never even given the ability to reason through our purposelessness. And the second time they get there, this is when the absurd, basically, Camus calls this character the absurd hero. And this is when the mother becomes the absurd hero of the movie because she turns around as a rock, you know, she shifts around and she has googly eyes. And it's basically this beautiful portrayal of the fact that, look, this is meaninglessness. We're just two rocks in a desert, but that doesn't mean we can't joke about it. We can't have fun <laughs> with it. And the googly eyes represent, I think, this very subtle position between nihilism and existentialism that absurdism exists within, which is just this, you know, let's laugh, you know, let's have fun with this. And that's kind of where the movie ends up. And in the end, she explains her position to joy. And it's never really clearly said that she is absurdist and there's no real facts to back this up, but that's my interpretation of it. And I've heard this said before. I actually heard of this idea before I even knew what absurdism is. I kind of just ignored it. I was like, oh, yeah, it's just a movie, whatever. <laughs> right. But I feel like understanding this part a little bit more has really developed my intuition for this movie a lot more. And I've started to think about other elements that I didn't think about before. And if you watch it again now, you realize, yes, this is an absurdist movie. And at the end of it, you know, the daughter also comes to this absurd realization that, yes, the universe is meaningless and everything that I do to try and find meaning in it will be futile. But at the end of the day, you know, it's these little small moments that matter the most. It's Again, that one quote in another universe, I would have loved to do laundry and taxes with you. So, yeah. Wow. I think if you want to, if anyone has listened to this and goes and watches everything everywhere all at once again, I think you'll find this throughout the movie and you'll start to realize that these googly eyes serve as more of just a comic kind of positioning of random things than you think. Wow. Shout out Sherrod for this episode, man. This is awesome. <laughs> Dude, it's crazy though, right? Yeah, that is wild. I've never... It's interesting. It just added so much dimension to that movie. And I love the movie, I think, looking back on it for the visual elements. So it was incredible. Like the colors, the cutscenes, etc., the characters, all of it was amazing on a surface level. But then when you bust below the surface to something related to the absurd, <laughs> that's actually yeah. awesome. Wow. I got to rewatch that movie. Dude, yeah, I don't know, man. This stuff is so cool. Let me try to, if that is, I'm trying to think about how I will go forward. So I think that's a good framing of, it makes it much more, like there, those questions arise, I think naturally of like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, what's the point of doing this? And like, for example, in my life, like being in San Francisco, computer science is like front and foremost, the discipline that everybody uses to, navigate the world, to create companies, to solve problems, et cetera. And the question comes up, why are people 
spending so much time doing this. And I think meaning comes around one, helping other people, two, creating things like art, like you mentioned, and then three, and the most uh, meaningful thing in my experience has just been struggling with those problems and just like, grappling with hard things and just having fun solving problems. And I think now looking at it through an absurdist lens, like that's a beautiful thing, regardless of whether there's a result that demonstrably makes you money or helps other people. Yeah, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> cool. Let's wrap it up there then. I like that. I like that. Hey, are you still listening? If so, you've reached the end of the episode. As usual, you can find all of our updates on Instagram at surfacetension.pod and look for future releases on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.